Hey everyone, uh, welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here is Karim, uh, a little bit different than normal. Uh, we are uh, talking about data-driven sustainability. Again, we want to thank Phoenix Contact for sponsoring this episode. We want to introduce our special guest, Dave Eifert of Phoenix Contact. Dave, thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to finally be a guest on this show. I've watched it. I've listened to it. I've heard a lot about it. So good to be here. I, I, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I've, I told this to, to a number of guests. I don't know how we have managed to go so many episodes without getting you on. Uh, and so I, I'm happy that we can rectify uh, that, that previous wrong. Would you mind giving everyone a, a little bit of, of background, uh, kind of an introduction to, to who you are and how you have wound up in this, uh, in this space chatting with us? Absolutely. Well, thank you for the opportunity, first of all, like the work you guys do. And uh, Dave Eifert, I am the Senior Business Development Manager for IIoT at Phoenix Contact USA. I've been doing that for like 18 or 24 months, depending on uh, how official you want to be about it. Prior to that, I ran our water wastewater vertical market uh, for about 10 years or so. And then before that, I was involved in automation, sales and marketing and um, at Phoenix Contact. And then prior to that, I did roles, similar roles with other companies like Johnson Controls, uh, Eaton Corporation, Westinghouse back before that. So I'm starting to date myself. I went to college uh, at Clarkson University up in New York State. Uh, got an inter interdisciplinary engineering and a management degree, which I think has been really a good platform on which to uh, to pursue all this other stuff because I've always been at the nexus of kind of business and the technology that enables that to be more efficient. And that's really what we're talking about here today. And it's kind of... Uh, I think really uh, we all have heard of industry 4.0 and this is, it's a real thing <laughs> as you guys are well aware and your audiences, but a lot of people were pretty skeptical about that, what it really meant, what it would bring us, how it would benefit people and, and companies. Um, and same thing with, with uh, sustainability um, and with industry, I'm sorry, with uh, industrial internet of things and IOT in general. So a lot of these different terms sounded like, buzzwords. They have been buzzwords. They've kind of fallen in and out of favor. But I believe that now today we're at a place where we can actually derive a lot of value out of these different concepts and um, make them more than just concepts, but actually tools that could benefit a business and their outcomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm looking to, uh, to, to, to jump into that a little bit more, but I have one question about all, all of the previous things you were doing. So I was at a trade show a long time ago. Eaton was there. They always had the best toys. Were you working with Eaton when they had that Orange County chopper, chopper bike? And I, there was a Hummer that they drug around uh, to, to all I of the, the trade shows? Nope. No, they, they I, waited till I got out of there before they, they debuted all the cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, for the longest period of time, especially the power division, um, always yes. had the, well, certainly the most expensive toys. Uh, now, now we've got robots and all of these other crazy things that, that we drag to, uh, to trade shows before that they had motorcycles and, and Hummers painted with uh very like late nineties, early two thousands, uh, blue lightning bolts, uh, which, uh, which are, are very memorable. Yes, that was, uh, but, I think that was probably in a reaction to uh, Schneider with their squirty brand okay. that had a lot of NASCAR sponsorships and they would drag NASCARs okay. around uh, to different events. And I think Eaton decided, hey, we got to one up them in some fashion. Just a guess. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Karim, biggest NASCAR fan on the uh, on the stream right here. No, that that that, <laughs> but, that, that, that is what. But I, I saw I said I saw like I was on in software conferences and there's always the biggest boot. They always bring uh, a Lamborghini or Ferrari and uh, yeah, it's always it always works. I think it was it's mostly the best traction that I've ever seen. So smart move. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I, you, you let us up. You talked about a, a bunch of, of words: industry 4.0, IIoT. You, you've been heading the IIoT uh, group as I think you said senior product manager at uh, at Phoenix for the last uh, coming up on two years. At this point, uh, I don't know, maybe four or five months ago, we started hearing about data driven sustainability which is kind of been described to me as, as IIoT with, with a purpose. And I'm like, I love this, but I would imagine it, it's a little bit more than, than that fairly simple statement. Uh, Dave, would you mind kind of uh, kind of walking us through what, uh, what, what data-driven sustainability is, please? Well, absolutely. Um, my first encounter with the term sustainability and the concepts therein were when I was at Johnson Controls, and that started about 20 years ago, uh, 2003. And um, back then, there was a term called the triple bottom line that actually had been coined probably in the mid-90s and really started catching some traction late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and it kind of has fizzled out since then. And I think it's a little bit of a shame because I think it was pretty instructive in that it was a different way of thinking about corporations and their mission and their bottom line. And it's not just purely profit-driven. That could have all the profits in the world that you want, but if you did it with a short-term focus without considering the community and, re, and the ecology, the, the uh, environment, that it would be short-lived because you'd, you'd uh, exhaust your natural resources or you'd pollute or you would uh, burn your employees out or uh, whatever the case might be. So now that I think it may have fallen out of favor because it was really difficult to measure the non-financial aspects of the triple bottom line. Uh, anyhow, so I think sustainability kind of popped its head up quite a bit early 2000s and kind of languished a little bit. I think really it's really surging now. And I believe that there's a lot of legislation, regulations in Europe and a lot of uh, kind of customer sentiment in the United States and the rest of the world to embrace doing things more sustainably. And what that means to me is that you're operating in a manner in which you could operate indefinitely. You're not going to exhaust resources. You're not going to pollute to the extent that things aren't, you know, livable. Um, you're trying to do things with the entire life cycle, not just of a product, but of, of an enterprise in view. And so it it's a noble concept, but frankly, one that I think as an evolved society, uh, we should be embark embarking on. I think the only excuse to not act in a sustainable manner is when you're in a bootstrap mode, you know, trying to get something started up. Let's say it's an emergency and you, you got to burn some tires just to stay warm for the night so you can make it to the next day. Um, in those cases, obviously, you got you to gotta do what you got to do. But once we've gotten to the point where we have a, a nice stable society and civilization, um, I think it behooves us to, to look forward to future generations and make sure we ensure that it's a good community, uh, a good environment for them as well. And I think we've, we can do that. Now, um, sounds high-minded, it is high-minded. Our company uh, about three years ago announced what we call the All Electric Society. 
as an initiative, our kind of our guiding North Star. But it's really just around the whole concept of sustainability, decarbonization, et cetera. So that's kind of what we're all aligned towards right now. And out of that, we in the U.S. kind of coined the term data-driven sustainability because we quickly came to the realization that, yes, it's a high-minded ideal and it's something worth pursuing, the sustainability concept, decarbonization, et cetera. But what are the actual concrete steps you can take to get there? And you need data. Just like we're talking about with Industry 4.0 or IIoT or digitalization, the fundamental trading unit of currency is data. And how do you effectively get the right data at the right time in the right context to make a meaningful, impactful decision and inform you to show you you're going the right direction? Um, and that's really what it's all about at its essence. And I think it plays in well to dispel some of the the issues we've had around IIoT or Industry 4.0 or some of these buzzwords over the last five years is that they came flashing out with great flourish and and promise. And then <laughs> in some cases, there wasn't much to back it up. Uh, or in other cases, they were misapplied or maybe applied um, maybe too wide and not deeply enough or, or in some fashion that it just didn't take. So I think now we're, we're past that trough of disillusionment if I may use that term, hmm. and we're, we're to the point where it's people are saying, okay, how do we actually truly get to the brass tacks and make some of the stuff work? And I'm gratified to see we're finally approaching that point where people are actually, uh, pra as pra practitioners, pardon me, um, making the stuff actually work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I guess I want to want to talk a, a bit more on that sustainability part. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I feel like I guess I, I like where you're coming from. I feel like good organizations who want to keep and retain good employees want to be sustainable, not just a, for so people can continue to, to work and live in a place, but so that there is that that uh, that hope and talk of work life balance and everything else yes. along those uh, along those lines, um, and then also uh, you know sustainability to the environment. I guess I want to talk about sustainability towards the environment because I know Phoenix, especially Phoenix Contact USA, um, has been doing a lot. I think geothermal. I think there, there's solar. There, there's a bunch of really interesting things, and we're going to talk about that uh, later this month. Is is some of the activities that I've been doing. Are you, when you're talking to end users, Dave, are, are they saying, hey, Dave, we need to monitor our power, monitor our energy better so we know how much we're using. We need to do some sort of generation or co-generation, so something more sustainable. Are those conversations kind of coming full circle back from the triple bottom line you talked about originally? Yeah, they really are starting to. Um, you know, when we think about these fancy terms like IIoT or digitalization and Street 4.0, yeah, people got caught up in kind of the and fell in love with being the smartest person in the room to talk about this kind of stuff and embrace this kind of stuff in a maybe a superficial manner initially. And then, you know, they said, well, you know, where's the beef? <laughs> so uh, now to, we're, we're to that point. So people are saying, well, how can I improve my process, save energy so I can save money on my product that I'm producing? So it could be as, as pedestrian as that. OK, it's still a very worthy goal. So some people are just looking at it from that standpoint. Other people are looking at it from, I have some marketing capital that I can build, some equity that I can build if I can demonstrate to the world that I'm acting in a sustainable manner. And uh, we see it all around us now. You can hear about it more as kind of a selling point for a company 
uh, that we're acting in a sustainable type of way. And yes, that can devolve into nothing more than a marketing message, but hopefully people are getting more attuned to uh, holding people's feet to the fire there. And, uh, you know, there's carbon offsets and um, you may have seen in the news in the last year or two, there's been some greenwashing going on with that, where maybe mm-hmm. somebody is selling the same forest tract to five different people. And it's not really having the attended carbon offset effect. So hopefully we have the governance in place or we'll, we'll soon have that as a society to, to winnow through that and make sure that that kind of, those gains aren't happening. So um, there's a chart that we have, and I'm not going to try to pull it up now, but if you can just picture it in your head uh, and, the, and the audience can as well of today, 2020 ish to 2050. And imagine a, a line going from say 65 or 70% at, at present day, and that's representing the fossil fuel share of energy generation going down to zero by 2050. Okay, so you got this downward trend there. So we got to make up the energy some way. So one one of those is uh, sustainable uh, renewables. So wind, you know, energy, solar, et cetera, et cetera. So say that's going to build from, you know, 20% of the overall energy to say 35, 40, 50%, something like that. And then the rest of that's got to be, um, balanced out by power to the X. So these are upcoming technologies like green hydrogen or other type of things like that, that we're not necessarily gonna have a battery in a device, but maybe run it on hydrogen or methane or something that's at least generated in a greenish kind of a way. Um, and then finally, that the last way to get us back up to 100%, and actually probably beyond 100%, because our net energy usage may gain by 2050, is, um, actually to, to reduce it through energy reduction. So look at our processes and make them much more efficient than they are today. So if you look at that portfolio of different techniques to get us to a carbon neutral or carbon positive future, uh, we have to embrace all of them. So one of the ways is energy monitoring today uh, to enable energy reduction today. And then um, as we go forward, we'll start looking at doing decarbonization via some of these other techniques like uh, power to the X and uh, some of the other things we talked about. So that's all cool stuff. Um, Energy monitoring has been around for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, There've been various um, programs in in, um, ESCOs, energy service companies that have cropped up to help uh, other companies to do do that. So those all should be part of somebody's energy um, mindset as they go forth trying to save energy. Um, and whether the motivation is simply to make their products cheaper, make more profit, or to actually do decarbonization, it's all good in my perspective. Um, but the key thing is, is energy. And the other aspect I'll, I'll add on to that is we had that own that very concern in our own facilities, um, primarily to, to pursue the decarbonization goals that we have. So we went about it by, and this is in Germany, at um, actually the factory that makes PLC Next, our, our flagship PLC product line, among other many other things. So our number one consumers of energy there were uh, some plastic injection molding machines and some things that did uh, circuit board, um, surface mount technology, other things like that. And so we said, let us concentrate on the most energy intensive machines first, because that's where we're going to get the biggest bang for the buck. And we were able to find that uh, we're already monitoring those machines like crazy for just to maintain the operations of the machinery. So we were able to probably harness 
all the information we needed for this project, the energy reduction project, uh, from just like 5% of the overall IO count that we had on the machines. So if we had 100,000 IO, we only needed to monitor 5,000 of them to do this whole project. And that was overall, we started much smaller. Um, the cool thing we learned is that we, when we monitored the energy, we were able to see where the waste was occurring and curtail that and save anywhere between 10 and 30%, depending on the process or the machine, which is fantastic. Okay, that's yeah. a su success. You put it in its box and say, we succeeded. Um, but the nice thing about it is when you start adopting digitalization or IIoT as an effective set of tools, you have an architecture whereby you're probably doing like a public subscribe type of an architecture with your data. And when you're doing it that way, it becomes much easier to democratize that data or share that data with appropriate stakeholders. And so at the outs outset of the project, we didn't even have somebody who would come in later to the equation. And that was a data scientist. And he all of a sudden took a look at the exact same data that we were already harvesting for energy monitoring purposes. And with his unique set of eyes and skill sets, he was able to look at it and run it through some machine learning algorithms and do some artificial intelligence on it. And through that was able to see uh, some anomaly detection, detect some anomalies. And through that process was able to actually improve our process, reduce downtime, increase yield and throughput, and give us about a 10% boost in production that we weren't even really planning on. And it all came from the same source data and we didn't even really envision that benefit when we started the project. But it just shows you the value of the data, being able to share it with different stakeholders appropriately, you know, through password protection and, and certificates and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then get a different stakeholder with a different motivation and a different, um, you know, looking for different benefits and could really kind of reuse that same data a second time and, and get additional benefits out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting point. Um, there's a comment on LinkedIn that makes a really interesting point that says, um, I'll put it on the screen, but basically that, yeah, a lot of people talk about electricity generation, but not a lot of people speak about driving efficiency, right? Like, so consuming less or using different energy. And um, it's an interesting angle to focus on sustainability because I think it's the, it's the thing that really can be linked to the bottom line in general. Mm -hmm. It can be easily... Um, brought up to the board, to the you know higher management, and explained and understood, and uh, get some um, support because, especially in industries that are heavy, as you mentioned, um, I worked a bit with chemicals, and for them that was an extremely huge expense. Yeah. Um, and on a on a huge site, it was extremely hard to uh, figure out where the energy was coming from because they re they were reusing this the the steam from one process to feed another process and things like that and. Um, and let's say bulk chemicals, the margins are very low. So energy is one of the best places to start saving. And I think, I think that's probably the most, let's say, efficient way to approach sustainability, at least in the short term and have these small gains in the short term, because it's not, you're not talking about, let's say like waste management or stuff that are like a bit harder to, mm -hmm. uh, put a, a dollar value on. But energy, I think, is a really good focus on um, uh, to to get people on board to move things forward. Um, yeah, I agree, Karim. Yeah, just a quick question there. So you mentioned that energy monitoring has been there for years. Uh, you know, I, I, like we've been collecting data for years. Is there was there something in the past, let's say, three to four years, something that shifted that 
suddenly made something possible in IIoT that maybe reignited that conversation, made use cases possible, other than the culture shift and the mentality shift from a technical standpoint? Did the hardware evolve in some way, compute or software? Have you seen really, really good like question. Uh, very, very perceptive question because if I go back 20 plus years ago, I was a power management sales manager with uh, Eaton Corporation. And we had power meters, we had uh, software, and we had communications to, to transmit it from the meter to the software. Uh, the twin frustrations I had at the time, which was not anything to do with Eaton, it was just endemic to society and the industry, was one, uh, production was king and production is still king. Mm-hmm. Um, and all we could do was pretty much sell it to facilities because production was look, look, I don't want anything on my machines that's going to potentially interrupt production. Okay. That's mm-hmm. it's sacrosanct. If you bring me down for, for 10 minutes, I, I waste any gain I had in energy, I, I lose in production and it's not worth it. And the plant manager is going to fire me and yeah, you're not going to touch it. So that was one of the frustrations. The other frustration was back in that era, everything was very much siloed. So you had a dedicated bus bringing the data back to a dedicated server with dedicated software, and it was trapped there. And it was trapped in the hands of somebody who probably had no clout within the organization to really do anything meaningful with it in in many cases. Okay, if it's a heavy production environment. Now, if you were talking about a K through 12 school or hospital or something like that, maybe facilities had more sway and they could, you know, say, hey, we're going to turn off the lights now and we're going to scale back the air conditioning now or something like that. So those two things kind of were were legacy uh, stumbling blocks, I think, for for real industry to, to treat meaningfully reduce energy usage. So as we move forward through the beginning parts of the industry 4.0 revolution and, and the beginnings of IIoT. I mentioned earlier, architectures have changed. Before we had a very rigid automation pyramid that you're all very well familiar with. You had your sensor levels, PLCs, SCADA level, MES, ERP, blah, blah, blah. And it was very difficult to get data from one level to the next. Uh, might involve several different integrators or different skill sets, or maybe it's just mm-hmm. firewalled off in some way, or perhaps it was stuck not even traversing the higher levels, but just going side to side from department to department. So now that we have things like um, brokers, things like MQTT for data transport, it get if once you're in a broker and you can do publish subscribe, now, like I mentioned before with our own instance, we had a data scientist all of a sudden subscribe, whereas prior it was just a production manager or some energy efficiency uh, energy manager perhaps. Mm-hmm. So now you can very easily facilitate uh, getting data to the right people in the right format, in the right time, that they can use it for very vital information that they can hopefully affect the positive change. So put this in a production standpoint. Now, if, if you're couching it in terms of OEE, how can I keep my machine up and running and more efficient and reduce, you know, uh, increase yield, reduce waste and things like that. And this all comes as part and parcel of that energy data. And you can at the same time assure production that, you know, we understand this, you own this process, you own production. It's very important. We don't ever want it to go down, but we can um, more surgically look at this and just stop things when it's appropriate for the process and start it up in a more intelligent way that we have the proper temperature when we need the proper temperature and not 20 minutes before and not one second later. 
Um, so with, with the increased sensorization and the um, ability to share it with the right stakeholders, I think you do know you do have much tighter control and more assurance that production won't, won't be adversely affected, but yet you're still able to save energy. So that I think those two things I believe are differentiators versus the past. Hmm. Absolutely. So I think that the, I guess b before I, I talk about the application that, that Dave did, uh, I do want to tease. Uh, so Monday, uh, March 27th, we're doing our first live build on Manufacturing Hub. We're actually going to go through the process of building an energy monitoring system uh, to showcase some, some simple tools that you guys can go leverage yourselves if you would like to go start monitoring energy. Uh, so stay tuned for that. We will have an event and a thumbnail up in the next, I don't know, a few days, week, thereabouts. You guys can come watch as, as we go through the process of building it. It scares the crap out of Karim, uh, just my concept of it. So if you want to watch the most dangerous thing on the Internet, Monday, March 27th, uh, come hang out with us. Uh, at about four o'clock East Coast time. So having said that, I and I would like to, to thank Rob for his comment uh, on how not enough people talk about how reducing the consumption of energy is. I think that we will see, continue to see more of that as energy costs increase. Um, and as energy costs increase, it'll be more and more important. Uh, and, you know, the, the concept of saving 10 to 30% of energy costs for those big producers, those are real numbers. Those are thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars for facilities, depending upon how, depending upon how large they are. I worked with a specialty chemical facility uh, who had no idea what their bill was going to be. Uh, it was like plus or minus 25% was basically budgetary guesstimate at the end of the month. They, they were always wrong. And just knowing how much they were going to spend based upon some rough calculations was a huge win for them, much less how can we go uh, optimize optimize that, right? They were about a million dollars a month. 30% of a million dollars a month is, is real money if you guys are, are in – if you guys are into that. And I would like to, to highlight one of Lewis's comments, right? He said how he loves the use case for artificial intelligence, right? A 10% increase in production that wasn't planned for just off of these energy savings is amazing. And I absolutely think it's amazing. That's almost a, we started on energy and we backed into production or OEE or any of these other values. When you, when you guys are, when you're talking about I guess not even you guys. There are very few people talking about data-driven sustainability, at least before this show. I would imagine lots of people on the internet will be talking about it after the show. But when you guys are talking about it, do you lead on the sustainability at like energy monitoring, uh, energy savings, and then talk about additional additional process and business benefits? Are, are you seeing that that, that is, is catching on? Um, it really depends on the organization and where in the organization you're, you're aiming your message. I think executives are really tuned into the sustainability message now. Mm -hmm. So I think you can lead um, a plant manager or an executive with the whole green side of it, the sustainability side of it, decarbonization, net zero, uh, carbon positive. These types of threads are becoming more and more popular because I think uh, increasingly in the U.S. and certainly in Europe, um, more and more customers are looking to make those types of buying decisions of companies that are, are, are acting in those types of ways. Uh, in Europe, they have additional legislation, uh, regulations mm -hmm. that are driving it as well. In the U.S., we're probably going to be more market-driven, but uh, I think the market is speaking. And so I think that people are really paying attention to these, these topics at that level. 
it, it'll filter down eventually, maybe very shortly, but um, lower in the organizational uh, hierarchy, if you're talking to controls engineers or perhaps maybe a plant manager or somebody else, they might be more inclined to look at traditional metrics like OEE and, and process improvements and just reducing cost. And that's completely fine too, as long as it's done in a way that's in accord with these larger um, uh, threads, like, like I mentioned before. So, and the, the good news is when you properly censor things, when you have a, a good edge gateway and, and are able to facilitate that data from point A to point B and then share it with appropriate stakeholders, you're able to, to hit all those boxes. You, you, so you can do the OEE improvement, you can do the energy savings, but you can then also aggregate that and show how it's actually impacting the sustainability effort, the decarbonization effort. So um, it's it's it, it's high-minded, uh, but it's it's actually more possible now than it ever has been in the past. And uh, it's, it's good to see that um, a lot of the buzzwords and a lot of this flash and bang from of the you know this fourth industrial revolution and and IIoT and digitalization, all these flashy concepts are actually finally taking hold in, in a more humble way, but they're serving a larger purpose, in my opinion, um, mm -hmm. going towards these these noble things. And you know, like the UN has sustainable development goals, and those are some of the things that we've. Uh, kind of patterned our all electric society uh, vision uh, corporately after. And the vision is that, you know, one day in the not too distant, dis distant future, everybody on earth will have access to um, affordable energy and therefore it'll drive economic possibility. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's very high minded. Uh, it's what we should be doing. Um, and I think if we play it correctly societally, will these are the tools that can help get us to that point hopefully sooner rather than later and when i say sooner rather than later 2035 through 2050 is kind of mm -hmm. like where most people are talking about trying to get to the carbon neutrality um aspect and um you know with these tools hopefully we can accelerate and get to that point mm -hmm. oh. yeah uh just i mean david you have a question specific well i felt like so you're ready to go there <laughs> I was, I was going to say, I'm, I'm going to steal Vlad's train of thought and say, I have so many questions, but I'm going to let you go ask the next question, Karim, and I'm going to let like the, the next 30 marinate. Yeah, I I, so I, I just want to bring it back again to maybe the technology side or more on maybe like a practical side. So um, let's say I'm a I'm medium-sized manufacturer today, um, looking to, to deploy some of these things or at least explore uh, some of these options. The question is, where do I start? Because a lot of manufacturers I know, they have a lot of legacy systems. As you said, yes. production is the most critical thing. We cannot stop things. Uh, we have a lot of short-term things to attend to, you know, profit targets to hit, revenue targets to maintain, uh, things like that. We have a lot of legacy technology that maybe doesn't play with this. We don't have the talent in-house. Uh, you mentioned data scientists, you know, like these people. So what have you seen work? What, what, how, where, how, they, how should they, they start? Who they should bring around the table? Where should they go get this type of talent? Should they develop in house? Should they partner with research institutions? So, mm -hmm. how, how have you seen it play out in the cases that you know maybe worked kind of uh, yeah uh, were successful? The great great series of questions there, um, and I should mention <laughs> preface this with. Depending on which statistic you believe, it's somewhere between 70 and 80% of a lot of these projects have failed. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I believe that's 
that was the unfortunate uh, startup phase where people really didn't know what the heck they were getting into. They just they saw these these visions of uh, of IIoT dancing in their dreams, and they tried to apply stuff that they didn't understand. So uh, I think we're past that era, and I think I always go back to there's. Uh, a pretty simple way to approach projects like these. One is to try to get executive buy-in because if you get that, you're going to have a leeway to try some things, maybe fail fast. Um, or conversely, if you have success, then you can scale it. Whereas if you don't have the executive buy-in up front, um, if you have great success in your little corner of the world, good luck scaling that. You know, It, it becomes a great one-off and then you never get any further. So executive buy-in is very important in my opinion at the outset. But then I, I say immediately take your scope and narrow it right down very, very tight to a process, a machine, something very approachable uh, and digestible and try to make it one that's an impactful one. So it's it's the highest energy user. It's the worst performing uh, uh, link in your chain of, of what you do so that when you do have a positive effect, it really materially benefits the company because that's ultimately what you want to do is you want to have some material business benefit from whatever you're applying here. So having said all that, um, the other thing we've really noticed is that, you know, the incremental cost to add some of this stuff, as I mentioned before, we found in our own practice, three to 5% of the IO we already had was all we needed to really um, leverage for this data to come forth and give us this, these insights we needed. So that's not that much. So it, it's not that much of a cost penalty to add that in parallel to your existing control system. If, you, if you're comfortable with your existing control system, it has effective uh, industrial communication protocol that can use your protocol. Let's say it's already monitoring all the IO you need and through that protocol, you can get it to an edge gateway, go for it. If you feel comfortable doing that, there's absolutely no problem doing that at all. But if you're a little bit reticent about that, it's not that costly to throw some IO onto an edge gateway and monitor it yourself and do it ind completely independent from the process. And um, in that way, the process people hopefully have no trepidation about you moving forward with this. Um, if they're cooperative and say, hey, yeah, tap into my existing PLC, pull out some Modbus or some Ethernet IP or Profinet packets and, you know, bring them into your gateway and turn them into MQTT or spark plug or something like that, send it up to the cloud. That's cool too. So um, that's the other aspect of it. The third, third or fourth, whatever number I'm up to, the next thing I would make sure I did. And I just, we're going to have a talk about this on IOT community on Friday is to make sure you have a truce between IT and OT in your facility and in, in your enterprise and recognize that you each bring unique strengths and unique perspectives that can really benefit this if you can work together. I'm not saying it has to be fully converged and you're one big happy group. It could be two groups, but there does need to be collaboration to be successful. I mean, you maybe could be successful in small ways without collaborating, but be truly successful and to have the best outcome you can, you need to collaborate with each other. And a, a good example I can think of is we put up a demo on an AWS cloud um, happens to be ignition software. Um, and we have our various different devices talking various different protocols across the internet and ultimately being displayed in that format. Um, our OT guy was very good. He's a gold certified ignition integrator in his own right. Uh, so he could do all that screen, all those screens, no problem. Uh, 
he could also configure the uh, firewalls and do all the stuff he needed to do to make sure the data could get out of our building and, and traverse the internet and all that kind of stuff. He, pro he And he could get onto the AWS cloud and he could set up an EC2, uh, you know, Elastic Compute, and he could do some S3 buckets. Whatever he needed to do on the dashboard, he could do that on, on AWS. But when we got our IT guy involved, DevOps guy, he knows Terraform. He knows uh, best practices from the IT world to do cloud um, deployments. And he was able to set this all up in code. And now we have the ability to do revision control. We can roll forward and roll back real easily. If there's ever any question, he can go back to the code and see exactly how everything was set up when everything was working perfectly. Um, and it's just, it's just incredibly uh, streamlined now that it's up and running and super stable and redundant mm -hmm. and scalable. And that probably wouldn't be nearly the same way if our OT guy did the whole thing himself. And fortunately, these two guys, Josh and David, had a great working relationship that they really iron sharpening iron over the course of a, a few weeks, of really testing each other's valid um, assumptions and pushing each other. And they came up with about three different ways of skinning the cat and then really went back and forth as to which one would be the best and settled on something. And it's it's been up and running now for six, eight months, and it's just solid and it's it's very scalable. We could just grow it to 100 times its size or 1,000 times its size with no worries. So it was really gratifying to see that when you get cats and dogs playing together, OTIT, there could be really good benefits that come out of it. So mm -hmm. I would make sure that's part of it as well. And um, the final thing I would say is try to embrace open standards, open protocols, open um, yeah, open source software, uh, things like Node-RED, MQTT, Sparkplug, things like this that keep you from being boxed in. Um, if, if you have a vendor that's got their all-encompassing system and, and you're, you have confidence in them, fine, that go with it. But it does, it could possibly hem you in. Better would be if you're starting out from scratch to try to embrace open things, like I mentioned, uh, Publish subscribe architectures, which can be enabled by things like MQTT or Sparkplug. Um, that way, you know you can send the data many different ways once you get a hold of it and start um, gathering it. So, those are some of the general precepts I would say. And um, mm -hmm. and then once you do things in an open way, you can find best of breed um, hardware, software, integrators to help you down that journey and help you with the places that you're maybe not as strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, those are, are really great tips. And um, I, I saw those play out in different ways too. I saw like part of the failure to describe like 70% of projects fail. I think that's just part of, that's just part of the game. Um, as you say, like anything new, you get a really big hype, usually sold by consultants and like really nice, shiny stuff promising that you're going to reach the skies if you do that. And then you have to try to really and trying to figure out for yourself what really works, what doesn't. Um, I saw that a lot in with machine learning where they thought that, hey, you can just take data, give it to a machine learning engineer, and they're going to just find it miracle stuff. And they realize, well, well, these guys don't really understand the process. And since these processes are very complicated, like, you know, they're, they're just shooting in the dark. So they had to find people who actually understood their chemical processes. And so it's, yes. it's a bit of a dance, but as you said, also, the key part is to have executive buy-in because they give you, they give you that room to work 
where you're not really stressed about like every dime, every project and stuff like that. At least they give you a certain mandate of, let's say, hey, we're going to try this for, you know, three, four, five quarters. Here's your resources. Uh, come back to us, uh, whatever. So, um, yeah, I think those those all theoretically are great. I think implementing them are much harder and we can go into each one of them and it could be yeah. a full episode on how to get those right, right? <laughs> totally agree with that, Karim. And that's why I really advocate um, that starting small and then failing fast. And But that, because you fail doesn't mean you throw it away. It, it could mean you iterate and you try something a little bit different. And if you have the runway and the permission to do that, um, it's it's good. I, I see it as very much of an evolutionary thing. So if you start kind of small, kind of manual and hands-on in a lot of ways, having an operator involvement, um, having a controls engineer involvement, testing things, trying manually a different thing, trying manually a third thing. I think that's really instructive. And then maybe the next evolution is that, hey, let's let's try machine learning. Now that we've kind of gotten hands-on and, and tried a few things ourselves, let us try to harness something like machine learning and see what all these thousands and thousands of data points when run through a model, what they can show us that we can't see with our naked eyes. And, and, but I, I don't, wouldn't validate or wouldn't um, lobby somebody to try machine learning right out of the gate without getting their hands dirty a little bit first to understand the process in a more, a, a deeper type of way, you know, because I think you can't really train a, a machine learning model effectively unless you know something about the process. And so that might be where you, you really have to get a domain expert on whatever that process is involved more deeply than you might have thought, you, you know, the machine learning model is not going to be able to do it by itself. You're going to have to have some kind of expertise to help train that and know what kind of data sets you use for training and for running it and things like that. So I, I still think it's, it's a hands-on iterative type of thing initially. And that's why you want to start small. You don't want to try to do too much because it'd be overwhelming. Um, but then you learn and evolve pretty quickly. And then you can start to say, hey, you know, we know where machine learning is appropriate. We know how to train the models. We can go from there to the next one. Hey, guess what? We don't have an in-house expertise on this particular process. As things evolve, experts will pop up for machine learning algorithms for, you know, a fermentation process or for this other process that maybe I don't have in-house and maybe we can work with them. Maybe they already developed a library, machine learning library that's resident that, that could run on, um, on an edge or in a cloud that could be harnessed to help those operations. And I, I guess that's a macro trend I would see moving forward is that there would be this, this decoupling of having the experts all resident within the organization, that there'd be more and more of an opportunity for experts to bubble up in different subject matter, whether it be the technology of IOT or whether it be the domain expertise of a certain process or a machine that would create more or less open source content for others to leverage and to be able to use across different organizations, perhaps if it's not proprietary or trade secret. And in that way, I, I see it being a lot quicker for us to, to get the job, to get the job done. I mean, if I'm a, a controls engineer and I don't have to reinvent every ladder logic line of ladder logic, and I can quickly get to, Hey, let me plug in this thing off the PLC next door as an example. And let's, let's pull this down from over here, this open source thing and run it. Um, and then just tweak it and optimize it for our particular process. You know, maybe you can get to the point where you're being efficient much faster than you would have if you had to do it all from the ground up yourself. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think all of those are good points and kind of kind of back to one of the original statements you made, Dave, as to, you know, 70 or 80 or more percent of these projects fail. I think in some part, a lot of the projects and failed were at the very early phases. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I think in my experience, most projects fail because we don't know what we want the outcome to be. Right. And so if we don't know what we want the outcome to be, we don't know what success looks like. You you go to the end of the project and you're like, was this a success? If you've got Mm -hmm. if you don't have a matrix or or metrics to measure it against and it's not a shocking success, if you don't do like what you guys at Phoenix Contact uh, Germany were able to do and and save 30 percent of the power and add 10 percent of production as as a super added bonus, you're like, oh, no, it wasn't successful. We we overran our budget. We overran our time. We overran all of these things. So I, I think that that those are. Those are really good points. I would hope that most of us have learned our lesson um, in, in the last <laughs> handful of years as we go to deploy the project. We haven't, but I would hope that most of uh, most of us have. Uh, <laughs> and then R- Rob made uh, R- Rob made a good comment, right? So as an OT person uh, who was brought into IT to help start driving some of these IIoT initiatives, he concurs that we need the collaboration with IT folks recognizing that the strengths and weaknesses and quickly find someone to complement your skill sets quickly is absolutely important. And I think we've had this conversation over and over again, and it it is important to find people kind of cross collaboratively through the organization if you want to succeed. Now, I want to talk about some more successes, maybe dive a little bit into the applications, but first we we have some people to thank. Uh, We actually would like to thank uh, Phoenix Contact uh, for sponsoring this episode and uh, this theme. And I don't know if Dave knew what I was getting ready to go talk about, but but he has certainly set me up very well. We want to talk about the all-electric society and how it's revolutionizing how businesses operate by bringing the power of industrial automation to the world. Phoenix Contact is consistently innovating reliable and cost-effective products to streamline production processes and increase efficiency. With AES, businesses can take advantage of high-speed automated production lines and more efficient energy management systems, which can drastically reduce overhead costs and improve overall productivity. Our solutions enable businesses to better meet customer needs and demands and keep up with the competition. The All-Electric Society is transforming businesses and driving the future of automation, Open control platforms such as the PLC Next technology combined two worlds of information technology IT and operational technology OT and promise a future of data-driven responsibility. PLC Next can access machine analytics remotely and securely, making your business more sustainable, whether viewed remotely through the cloud dashboards or on-prem as a machine HMI, PLC Next can help you find insights that make your factory more eco-friendly and efficient. Unlock a sustainable future with data-driven insights. Harness your existing analytics to elevate your businesses and propel your plant into the future with secure, safe, and sustainable remote access and monitoring. Transform data into actionable insights and maximize your data for better decisions. And eco-efficiency. Now, eco-efficiency is a bit of a tough word the the first time you you go read it, but I've got it the second time. Thank you for throwing the tongue twister in there, Zach. Uh, You guys can go to phoenixcontact.com and search out the uh, All Electric Society. They've got some very interesting uh, videos and graphics and things like that in there. And I think they talk a lot about uh, leveraging 
the use cases that the Phoenix uh, themselves have been uh, have been doing. Dave, do you, I, I know you you kind of set us up again, either intentionally very well or unintentionally on the All Electric Society. Uh, you seem to know more about it than the rest of us. Do you, do you have any other thoughts that you want to add in? The, the term is one which is descriptive. It could be a little bit frightening uh, to some mm -hmm. people. Uh, there's a lot of people vested in oil and gas, petroleum, and, and all that derives from that. And we're, what we're not saying by the term is that we want to do away with that immediately by any stretch. Uh, what we're saying is that uh, there will be time in the future, as I started to describe before, when the, the um, fossil fuel-based fuels will um, decrease to ultimately zero, the carbon-based fuels. So that day might be in 2050 or who knows exactly when that'll be. So the point is, let's use this as a transition time to look forward to that time when more and more things are electrified. Not that everything will be. Um, it might not be efficient to have huge, heavy batteries on every single thing out there. Uh, that's where I referenced power to the X and things like green hydrogen and other types of fuels such as those that might continue to endure for, for some period of time. So the point though, is that as we move forward, uh, more and more things will be electrified. We see that evidence every day. If you, you can't watch TV and see a car commercial without seeing a lot of EV stuff going on, uh, whether it be Chrysler or uh, Stellantis, um, uh, Chevy, GM, you know, Ford, everybody, um, not to mention even things like, like, uh, Tesla, et cetera. So it's, it's a trend that's, that's happening very rapidly. A uh, lot of automakers are saying their fleet will be completely electric by a certain time. So it's clearly a macro trend. And at the end game there is not just to electrify everything, but to reduce the carbon footprint. And um, so we see it as, as a huge series of, of mega trends that are all kind of coming together under that umbrella. So you could call it, the, excuse me, the all electric society, you could call it you know, sustainability, you could call it decarbonization, various different terms that kind of hint at the same thing that the end game really is to try to get to a point where we are not um, relying upon non-sustainable uh, fuel sources. And so when we get to that time, when we do have the energy and abundance, somebody's having a connection issue, hopefully it's not me. Um, to get to the point good. where things are good. okay, good, good. I got that scary message popped up. I hope, uh oh, hope it's not me. Anyway, uh, when we get to that day, then it'll be a great day for everyone because it will the energy and abundance will hopefully help folks that have been frozen out of the progress uh, afforded by readily available energy all over mm -hmm. the world. So that's kind of like the north star of our company, um, as articulated about three years ago by our, our executive management in Germany for a global kind of purpose statement. And so it was in that spirit that we decided to coin the term. And I think IRA was really key in that term at data-driven sustainability. And I think it's a good term because sustainability is the goal and how do we actuate it? How do we actually get there? And how do we, as people in the industries in which we serve, automation, namely, mm -hmm. uh, how do we bring to bear what, what we know uh, to that whole equation? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I love that. I think it's, it's a very interesting message. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's a very interesting message. And, and certainly there is something there for, for everyone. 
in order to, uh, yeah, certainly there is something there for everyone. I would imagine no matter where you work, sustainability, uh, reduction of energy consumption, all of these things are important. Uh, again, energy, fuel, everything is extremely expensive, especially as we, we see many energy costs uh, going up significantly uh, last winter uh, for, for, for most people. So certainly uh, keep an eye out for that. I guess I've got a, a two-part question uh, for, you, for you, Dave. Uh, we talked about a bunch of different ways to kind of leverage hardware, right? So go leverage IO that currently exists, or maybe we go put a data collector PLC in there. Maybe we go pick a couple of key IO points. Maybe we go put a couple of current uh, transducers on things to go measure, measure the energy, uh, measure the energy uh, just with that. Um, so I guess, Part one and two of the question is part one, what are you seeing uh, either technology or, or otherwise with mm-hmm. customers interested in? Um, and part two is who are you seeing? Uh, what is kind of the, the new breed of integrator, right? Or what are the groups going uh, able to go help end users leverage this technology? Because it's not just a hardware installation. It's a hardware installation. You have to understand the data and then maybe we're going to to work with a computer scientist or, or a data scientist of, of some sort in order to figure out the next levels. Uh, a lot of a lot of great questions there. We see a whole portfolio of different folks coming to the come to the fore on this. So you have your what I would call a traditional industry 3.0 integrator, control system integrator that is working their way in an evolutionary manner as opposed to a revolutionary manner into this brave new world. Uh, and, and they say, you know, we've done a lot of these things via SCADA over the years. We've done a lot of these things via Ethernet and before that, different field buses. And that's all true. And so they're able to, to use some of the, the actual real-world factory floor type of skill sets they de- developed over the, their period of, of operation to bring to bear here. But they're, they're learning some new skills along the way. They're learning how to, to make these things more... Um, maybe like a publish subscribe model of data transmission and, and, um, and uh, the ways that they can handle that. Um, they're sometimes sticking with the IEC 61131 uh, programming languages, you know, ladder logic and structured text. But increasingly, as they hire new folks in, these people right out of college are natively fluent in things like JavaScript and Python and, and C++ and things like that. So they're, evol- they're slowly evolving into it. And it's they've got kind of one and a half feet still in the established world that they've always known and then are yearning and learning into this new world. Um, and it's effective. You know, I'm not saying it's not an effective thing. The other thing is you've got a newer breed of integrators. These are typically startups. They maybe tend to be skewed a little bit younger and they come natively with these uh, higher level programming languages. They might be very well-versed in things like Raspberry Pi and Arduino. They probably have a whole killer home automation system that they've self-developed that they're they're using right now. And they're able to use these same skill sets that they've developed in college or just as a hobbyist and bring it into the world and immediately are natively dealing with data and understand data as the essence or the currency that's valuable in the whole equation. They come at it with a little bit different orientation and they they really understand the whole data centric aspect of it. So um, we see those, they tend to be smaller integrators, like I said, oftentimes startups, 
uh, but there are some larger ones as well. So they're, they're the ones that are very, very comfortable making the leap immediately to cloud or to the edge, whichever one's more uh, appropriate for that potential uh, solution. And um, so we see both impacting us greatly. And um, I think if you look at the pie chart of where the business will come from and, and what will drive it, I think it's going to be an ever increasing um, slant towards the data mm -hmm. side of, of people. Um, uh, and they're slowly going to be replacing the, the tried and true ladder logic folks, but they still have a role to play. And they, the thing I like about PLC Next is that it is an IUC 61131 PLC on the one side, and people can operate in that all day long and not have to do anything high-level languages if they don't want to. But if they want to, or if they have another person in their company who's natively good at JavaScript or Python or something like that, they can jump on that side and they can get their programs working together. So it's it, it, as much as we say um, the fourth industrial revolution, there is an evolutionary aspect to it. It's not going to be like a turning a switch. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's something that's become obvious by now. Um, everybody adopts it at a different rate. And um, I think it's important to recognize that I think early on, one of the reasons for some of the failure is I think people thought it was possible to, to digitalize your entire enterprise in one fell swoop. Mm -hmm. Like you had a consultant a million dollars and come back in 12 months or 18 months and all of a sudden you're uh, in this glowing factory that's made out of uh, <laughs> lasers or something like that. <laughs> and I was even talking to one of the head guys for uh, – for uh, manufacturing at AWS mm -hmm. and AWS might be one that you would expect would be in the camp of let's digitalize everything all at once. But even he said, no, it's, it's very much a iterative, let's do this process, then that process, then that process where it makes sense. And, you know, you're probably not going to digitalize everything because some things just aren't worthy of being digitalized within an enterprise. So mm -hmm. when I heard him say that um, in a conversation we were having in, in December, um, I said, man, now we're thinking along the same lines. And it surprised me that some mega, mega hyperscaler like that would be thinking along the same terms that we've been talking about here. Mm -hmm. uh, I was going to say, I feel like we've all learned the same lessons, Dave, as, as much as we'd like to be able to take that million dollar check or that $20 million check and make everything digital. I, I have found that very rarely is it the technical coding abilities or or even platform abilities most of the time in order to, in theory, turn everything digital. It's the how do we actually make all of these digital things work and how do we get the people to go work on the things that, that are digital. So uh, picking the, the correct applications, as, as we've said over and over again, uh, to, to evolve and, and pick, the, pick the high dollar, the high value, the high opportunity applications get a success and then be able to move forward with that is, is important. Mm -hmm. I think that yeah. I, I don't, I don't know anyone who is at this point in time of, of 2023, basically saying anything different. I feel like everyone who has said anything different has, has learned their lessons and, and has now backed it up uh, a, a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's right. Uh, yeah. So I, I feel like I, I've been, I've been trying to give you the opportunity, Dave, but uh, I feel like we should give PLC next a, a bit of a plug as to a, a, a really good uh, as to a really good uh, PLC as to a really good piece of hardware to collect a bunch of the sensor and other data in order to leverage it in, in energy monitoring or kind of other applications. Uh, I guess 
I will, I will give you the opportunity. I'll give you a bit of the push. Have you, have you, I, have you seen that working? I imagine that that's what you guys are using internally uh, to leverage some of this. You, would you like to talk about that a bit? Well, absolutely. Thank you for, for teeing up that, that softball for me. Um, I'll talk about it from two different perspectives. One is from an energy standpoint. So when we're doing energy monitoring in our own facilities, we either use PLC Next uh, with either Rogowski coils or CTs coming in directly to some IO on board, or we use an energy meter. We make one called EM Pro, um, and those could be networked via RS-45 or different protocols, you know, Ethernet, et cetera. And, um, you know, it's interesting what you find out when you start working with, with real people on the factory floor or facilities, et cetera. So we didn't have um, BACnet on our EM Pro. And, uh, you know, it's an older established building management specific protocol. We did have MQTT on it. Okay. So the beauty of MQTT is you could boot, pump it right up to a cloud directly. But, and, and, that's, and that's great. In some cases, you're going to have to take the sensor and send it directly to a cloud. But in a lot of other cases, you're going to want to aggregate it. And that's where we could either come back to the PLC next via an Ethernet protocol. But in his, in his case, our facilities management guy, energy management guy, he wanted to do it via BACnet for various different reasons. So that prompted us to, to start a development project to actually add that into our energy meters, even though it's an older protocol. It's just, so I, I think you got to be sensitive to the fact that you got people at different stages and how they want to approach something. And there might be some really good benefits of aggregating something locally, perhaps in an existing building management system, which uses BACnet, in addition to having these fancy Ethernet protocol or uh, uh, Internet of Things protocols. So that was one quick learning that we had there. And um, diverging from the energy discussion for a second to talk about POC Next. And one of the cool things that I, I saw us do with it and leveraging both the, the PLC side and the Linux open side was there was a uh, frack water application. And with uh, fracking, the uh, huge part of it is to take water, which you have to get from somewhere, which is often like a river, um, and then pump it down into the, the hole and break up the rock and then extract up the, the combined water slash oil or gas with it and then separate it and do all the whole process. So the the thing is with the water um you can only pump it when the conditions are allowable and so the people who dictate whether that's allowable or not is the u.s government and specifically the u.s geological survey the u.s geological survey already has sensors in the rivers and they have flow rate and they have stage or depth sensors both going on and so uh, it, it, you can't pump out of there unless the conditions are right. So it's got to be enough flow rate and enough depth to actually be able allowed to pump out of there. So they don't allow you as the operator to put your own sensors in there. They say, we already have sensors there. You have to go to our website, consult our website. And if it's above a certain value, you can hit the push button on the pump and start it. And if it's not, you got to stop it. And so what we were able to do with the PLC next was free up the operator from having to do that very manual process by the PLC Next through Node-RED can go out in an API, can go out and actually read the website by itself. The PLC can read the website and say, oh, okay, the river's at a flow rate of uh, 100 feet per second and the depth is 23 feet, that, that's a go. So, um, the note, so we got that from the API into Node-RED, we stripped out the relevant information we wanted, 
pass that over to the IEC 61131 traditional PLC side of our PLC next, where we went through and we did some manipulation there. In this particular case, they had an existing control system with an existing PLC that went to the VFDs to either pump or not pump. They wanted an input to their existing PLC coming in as an analog signal. So we actuated an analog output based on these flow rates and depths to come out of our PLC and into theirs as an analog input to their device. Mm -hmm. So their PLC thought they actually had a gauge, two gauges sitting in the river reading values. But in reality, we had this PLC next in, in between firewalling them off on the internet and doing all this automatic uh, reading of websites, translation and conversion into an actual analog output. So I thought it was a really cool uh, integration of a lot of different things all happening under the hood of one little PLC. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 That's, uh, that is a, that's that awesome. Is, th th those are, yes. Yeah. Th 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 those, those are both awesome. Yeah. One, thank you yeah. for sharing Dave. Uh, two, if you guys would like to know more about PLC next, take a look at the Solus PLC, uh, PLC next uh, course that, that Vlad put together mm -hmm. uh, last year. He's got a really good uh, starter course. If you guys would like to uh, to get up and running, he takes a, a PLC next with appropriate power supplies and everything else, and goes to uh, goes to show you guys how to set those up. I don't think we get quite as technical on the full course as to how do we pull in an API, perhaps turn it to an analog output, connect it to another PLC, and th then run everything. But good thing that Vlad is not here. I can commit him to adding that application. On, on the next on the next revision but no th that is an amazing yeah. uh that is amazing thank you uh thank you dave uh i guess the the, the next series of questions that i ask generally start about uh, asking you to predict the future but i feel like your last application was basically the future is now so uh but you're not going to get off that that easy dave w what is the what is the future of data-driven sustainability of, of iiot look like is it application similar to to what you just discussed kind of leveraging on top of legacy uh technologies is it going to be replacing legacy technologies is it some combination of both yeah i i think it's really going to be a an evolution uh won't be revolutionary won't turn a switch but it, it i think as people's eyes are open to what's possible it's going to kind of become an avalanche of of innovation and creativity and getting things done like this and it Someday it'll become an expectation um, that all things are connected. I mean, think about our kids today. There's, they can't even really conceive of a time when you didn't have every bit of information that you would ever want at your fingertips at all the time. Yep. You know, and I think those types of concepts will work their way into industrial controls and automation. That, you know, hey, if there's some data out there that's being gathered by some entity, not even us, but somebody there's probably got to be an API and some kind of website, some way to get at that data. You know, weather data, as an example, is a great example. Um, you can easily get that now pulled in via API to any application you want. You don't need your own anemometer up on a rooftop anymore. Um, so I think that's going to become the, the defa default mindset. And I think that um, people who were initially very afraid of cloud won't be afraid of cloud only because they're so used to doing banking and everything else on this. Mm -hmm. Now they, won't necessarily do everything in the cloud because cost might and latency issues might dictate that they want to do it locally on the edge. And, and luckily nowadays we can do machine learning and all kinds of stuff on the edge as well. Um, PLC next has a, a module that sticks on the side of it that allows you to 
has a, a massive amount of processing power for machine learning. You don't even need that module to do it right on the CPU of the device um, for most applications. So you can do it with the machine learning library we have available at our PLC next door. So machine learning is possible right at the edge. Um, so there's all kinds of different things that people are going to, it's kind of like a cobot. I think of it as automation, it'll be like a cobot. We're going to start thinking of these things as helpers that we work hand in hand with that, hey, I know something about my process. I know generally where I want to go but I can't evaluate a thousand data points per second like this machine learning algorithm can. Let me employ that as a tool to help me make a better decision and do that in rapid fashion. And uh, that'll, I think, become the expectation that people aren't limited to what was humanly possible before, but they're not ceding all control to some kind of machine. That, that I think there's going to be an increasing comfort factor with, I'm using this machine learning as a tool and okay. artificial intelligence as a tool to help me get where I need to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, like, I think where PLC Next is going, that is key to all of that is the whole openness, I think, openness aspect to it. Because you mentioned that example of uh, of the, with the water, with the flows. Okay, yeah, you were part of that discussion, so you build it, but I'm sure there's like thousands, over a thousand specific cases, edge cases in different industries, and people need access and like reliable access to something that they can tweak, that they can adapt to themselves. So I think that's the first step into making any of this possible. And then I think the next evolution is to make that process even more accessible to more people. So in software, you see that with the no code. So in the beginning it was like, hey, like now everything's open source, you can build your own stuff. And a lot of engineers and software engineers build a lot of cool stuff over the years. Um, and then now the next wave is like, hey, let us make that, let us give the same power to everybody. So it doesn't matter if you're a software engineer, you can still build this machine learning model and train it to do something that you'd like to do. So, but all of that starts, I think, with openness. Uh, but I think, as you mentioned, it's going to be a very, I think it will be a slow burn because also like from the specific nature of the automation industry where you have things running for 40 years <laughs> in software. Uh, yeah, sure. Some mainframes are still running somewhere, but a lot of the, a lot of these things have been migrated, and migration are easier than to rip and replace a bunch of hardware and like factory floors. Right. So, I think due to that nature, by design, that's like the rate like the rate limiting factor of like how fast really this really can go. Um, but I see that a lot of new facilities are being built with that in mind. So I think like the next wave of facilities, like shortly, like they're going to be like a a new wave of facilities are already built in with all these functionalities that can move things faster. But I think um, you guys are definitely like pushing in the right direction, uh, judging by my experience in the software world, let's say, because what I learned from automation mm -hmm. in terms of mentality and openness, you're, you're the equivalent of software in the 90s where Microsoft just like was closing yeah. everything and everyone was thinking that open source means you going broke and, <laughs> and, like, and like you're losing all your revenue and stuff like that. So uh, that's interesting. Um, just want to ask you one question, maybe like again on the practical side, because I know when it comes to sustainability. So the big dilemma is that you have to, you, ha you have, you have some short-term, I would say, like investments that could be perceived as like costs, as uh, you know, like uh, something that is maybe not good for the bottom line in the short term. Uh, and you kind of need to balance that with the long-term vision and stuff like that. So I was wondering, 
Are there places, are there maybe like government grants, uh, specific programs, something like that, where let's say small, medium manufacturers can look up to, can go and get maybe some funding, some financing, some help to kickstart some of these projects to take some some risks without you know hurting their uh, financials because yeah. especially with right now with the with the looming financial crisis maybe some people are more hesitant to like you know put put money in there but I'm sure if they could get it from somewhere they would that would help a lot moving these, some of the initiatives absolutely yeah Karim there there's a lot of state level um, programs mm-hmm. uh, that are offering small to medium sized manufacturers specifically funds up to twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars depending on the state to adopt these types of concepts and to put them into practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can cover hardware, software, some integration effort. And in many cases, twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars is certainly enough to automate a process or a machine or some equipment. So it's very much worthwhile and uh, that can help defray costs. It can either be cost sharing or just a, a straight up grant. So I would start with the state level things, check out the economic development uh, of the state that you might be in. Um, there's also an organization called SESME, which is part of the Department of Energy. Um, it's a smart manufacturing institute. It's a part, public partner, public-private partnership mm-hmm. that we are involved in as well. And uh, they have a lot of different centers where they can train workforces. They can help people adopt these concepts. Uh, we we're at one uh, in New Kensington, Pennsylvania, a few weeks ago. Um, a colleague of mine will be up at one at uh, in Troy, New York, at RPI, in a week or two. Um, so these are out there too to really assist, not just with the practitioners of the automation, but also like high school kids that are looking to get into from STEM into the actual world of operating um, these types of um, systems in the future, and in uh, helping workforces to become educated in how to use it. So. There are a lot of resources out there that are just looking to be tapped into and can be very beneficial in jumpstarting people's, um, and, and they're aimed at small to medium manufacturers typically. Mm-hmm. Not to say larger folks can't leverage it, but uh, small to medium is really their sweet spot that they're looking to help. Absolutely, all really good. Um, I will also throw out uh, MEPs, Manufacturing Extension Partnerships. Also very good if you are looking to, uh, if you are an end user manufacturer, looking to, to, to manufacture things, looking for help to go find funding and other things, do a lot of grant writing. I've worked with, uh, with a number of them that are able to leverage a bunch of those grants uh, very well. But that was a fantastic list. Uh, thank you, Dave. Uh, I guess we love to ask for career advice. Uh, so it, I, I should probably, uh, the, the, the conversation has gone a little bit all over the place in, in a good way. So let me be a bit more specific. Uh, Dave, if you're looking to, to talk to a kind of an early, maybe mid-career person looking to get into IIoT, looking to get into this sustainability and the data-driven sustainability, what what sort of career advice uh, do you have for, for one of these people? Well, I noticed uh, somebody popped up in the chat, Francisco Alcala, and... Uh, I can. Uh, I don't want to embarrass him, but I will use him as an example. Um, he took it upon himself to. He just popped up there, so he took it upon himself to to recognize that machine learning and AI are hot topics. So he found a, uh, a college curriculum. I think it was University of Texas. Don't quote me on that. He could probably correct me if I'm wrong. That offered a certificate or or perhaps a degree in in that discipline or those disciplines. So. Um, he, he embarked on that. Now he has actually 
a domain expert on a lot of things water waste, water related process wise. So he's actually applying these concepts to a couple different processes. And it could be a game changer for the efficiency of these different processes. So I guess long and short there is there's never been a better time to, if you're self-motivated to find information, whether it be through YouTube or through things like you mentioned before, with Solus PLC, with their introductory course on PLC Next. Um, there's a lot of information out there that you can harness and leverage and, and learn about. Um, it might even be a university type thing. But try to just find that little niche that you have an interest in that you can take the next step and just get a little bit sharper than the, the knife in the drawer next to you. <laughs> get a little bit of an edge on, on those folks and, and, and jump in there and um, start to apply your knowledge. It might even be you know home automation. Mm -hmm. You might be an enthusiast, a, a hobbyist. Jump into that. You learn a lot about protocols. You learn about gateways. You learn about different you know, real world concerns that you might have, distances, ranges, and so forth. And if you can follow those things, I think the passion uh, will lead you and the, the farther you get and the more people you network with, that's the other key thing is networking with folks through organizations like this. You can get a few people into a room and really start the innovation happening a lot faster than you might be able to solo. So um, people who are tuned into this right now, I think that's a big step in the right direction, not because of my content, but just by the fact that you're amongst a whole bunch of other folks that are interested in similar content and you can work together collaboratively to, to kind of further that whole thing. So. I think an openness, a curiosity, and then some pursuit of what interests you with, uh, as a subtopic within these things will start leading you to the right path and get you where you need to go. Um, and it, it's, it's such a wide open world right now that um, if you get started early and like Francisco did with some, some machine learning, it's gonna bode well for you in a few years. Absolutely. I think self-learners uh, over and over again, we hear positivity in self-learners. And that I, that I think is very good advice to anyone, regardless of where you are in your career and regardless uh, of any sort of industry that, that you're looking to be in. So, so thank you for that, Dave. Uh, we always like to ask people for book recommendations. And I know that you've got a, a slightly different book recommendation uh, than, than we normally talk about. So, so can, can, you, can you walk us through that? I, I love to read. Now, I haven't read much because I've been writing a book for the last six and a half years. It has nothing to do with I IoT. It's, uh, I live in Cleveland. Uh, I've been here 20 plus years, but way predating that when I grew up in New York State, somehow I was a Browns fan, Cleveland Browns fan. Oh, uh, they've so been terrible a for a long book. time. <laughs> yes. It, yes. Yes. It's, uh, the working title is The Curse of the Cleveland Browns. So it's a historical fiction. So all the football is real. And then there's a story woven around it, a fictional story of how the curse was, you know, uh, made upon them and what, what precipitated that, how it's playing out. Like I said, I've been working on it for six and a half <laughs> years. I can't wait to be done with it. I'm getting close. Um, so that's kind of kept me from reading a lot of books. Now, the one book I read most recently, I was on a plane. Um, I had the wrong, I forgot my uh, AirPods. I didn't have the right kind of connector to plug in traditional old fashioned earplugs. Yeah. I had no other reading material. My wife is a tutor for this little fourth grade girl. And she happened to have the book that that girl was reading. It's called I Survived. It's a series. Okay. And I don't know if any of you have young kids, but it, so I'm, out of boredom, I decided to read this book and it's really good. 
<laughs> it was about the Revolutionary War. Okay. And the author, I read the afterward, and she said, it's such a big topic. So she picked one battle, and it was one I'd never heard of, the Battle of Brooklyn. That's in Brooklyn, okay. New York. It was a big, pivotal, I think it was the largest single battle during the war. Um, and what was so good about it is it, it put it in such poignant human terms that you couldn't help but learn a lot just because of the compelling story. And it was written about a little boy um, that basically became a soldier by default, by accident, and um, all the, the things that happened. So um, if you have kids uh, and they're in like the second, third, fourth, fifth grade era, which mine are well past that, but if they are, um, this would be probably a dynamite way to get them very interested in history because it's not dull, dry facts on a textbook page. It's it's a living story and it's a quick read, but it's not a. Um, it's one that well, I was frankly surprised by the depiction of death and harm and injury for such a young audience. Okay, yes. not that it was gory, but it didn't spare those details. But it didn't also condescend to the re- did not condescend to the readers. And in the afterward, she mentions a lot of other books that they could read if they're further interested. And these are like by esteemed historians that are written for an adult audience. So it's kind of a good starter kit for kids to get interested and really um, kind of feel like they're living that and really have a visceral knowledge of it more so than a, a boring put me to sleep textbook. Interesting. So. I I think that this is the first. Uh, in-process, self-written historical uh, fiction book uh, that, that we've gotten. I'll make a note to Vlad. Vlad is not a sports fan. The Cleveland Browns are an American football team, Vlad. Um, yes. Vlad's not here. Otherwise, I would have I would have made that distinction for him. Vlad is not a big sports fan. Sports analogies are, are not this uh, not not <laughs> the strong point of this show. Uh, but but no, I think that 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 is very interesting. Uh, as a longtime Buffalo Bills fan, feel your pain, Dave. Um, having said that, I think that this is also the first time that we've had uh, a children's book recommended and as just about as interesting as most books that, that we, we get recommended. I think that there will certainly be some, uh, some Googling and, and looking, um, into that. Maybe, maybe not the children's book, maybe some of the recommendations beyond that. So, so thank you yes. for that. Uh, and then the last question we have for you is, is who should reach out? Who do you want to connect with, have conversations with? Are you looking for end users to talk about data-driven sustainability applications? Are is Phoenix Contact looking to hire? Kind of our open uh, open soapbox to you, to, to for us to thank, uh, for our listeners to, to thank you and see if there are opportunities to, uh, to continue the conversation on their side. Yeah, we'd love to talk to end users, but we really need good integrators to to kind of precipitate that relationship. And so anybody who's, you know, got the need, uh, reach out to me, reach out to anybody else at Phoenix Contact that you may know, and uh, we'd be happy to discuss any of these topics or others. Absolutely. That, that has been amazing. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, everyone, for, for coming to uh, to hang out with us on uh, on a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, if you guys are still listening, uh, please hit that thumbs up button. And please hit the subscribe button. Uh, hello to everyone uh, still watching us on Solus PLC. If you guys are listening to us in podcast format, please rate us five stars. Please hit the subscribe, follow button, download the podcast. Karim normally doesn't listen all the way through, so he doesn't realize that I say this all the time. But he does see the metrics saying when Dave remembers to request people to like, subscribe, and follow along, more people like, subscribe, and follow along. They do. I'm just 
I'm just as surprised as everyone else that, that you have made it to the end. But no, uh, thank you, everyone. If you guys are watching on LinkedIn or, or YouTube or any of those places, you have myself. Uh, you probably don't have Karim's contact information, but, but we can put that up there. You guys have Vlad's contact information, and Dave is also there on his LinkedIn profile. If you guys are listening in podcast format, this and hopefully all of the applicable other pieces of information are in the show notes. Um, maybe we have, uh, maybe we've leveraged machine learning uh, to go uh, to go get these in the show notes by the time this episode comes out. Uh, please, please, please come hang out with us Wednesday afternoons if you want to watch the live show, have your questions answered, and then we are generally in your earbuds Thursday at at some point, which is as. Uh, which is about as good as uh, as we can commit to at this point. But we are looking to get better, uh, better every week. Uh, but no, until, until next week, uh, thank you, everyone. We'll see you all soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.